Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 100, Dr Faustus, Wisdom, Power and the Immortal Soul. And before we get going, I just have to note that we've reached episode 100. No special celebration, after all, counting the bonus episodes I've produced something more like 125 episodes on the free-to-air podcast, and then there are the 62 or so Patreon episodes. So I'm just going to say thank you all for being there and for your continued interest and support. If you feel like doing something to celebrate the milestone, it would be a good opportunity for you to let me know what you think about the podcast, what you like about it and what you don't like, what you would like to see more or less of, that kind of thing. I'm always interested to hear what you think so that I can shape the podcast for the future. As ever, the email to contact me on is thoetp at gmail.com. And I'll leave it there because, in case you haven't already noticed, this episode is already a bit longer than most, and I don't want to add to it even more. So, thank you, and here's to whatever comes next. Last time, Marlowe's Tamburlaine the Great showed the conquering of the world on the Elizabethan stage demonstrating how it was a theatre of places conjured with words, and of larger-than-life characters that could be loved and loathed in almost the same breath. With the quickly written part two of the play jumping on the earlier success of the original, Marlowe showed that he had not only an eye for commercial interest, but it was at the heart of London playwriting at the time. And this was just the start. As I've mentioned before, the chronology of Marlowe's plays is very uncertain, and I will come back to other plays that were probably written before today's subject, but Dr Faustus is one of the most influential plays of the period, so I'm going straight to it. Most commentators see the play as Marlowe's masterpiece, and it has certainly been the most performed of his plays through the centuries. So, let's take a look at what still appeals and resonates about the play to give it its full title, The Tragical History of Dr Faustus The play comes to us in two printed versions. The first was published in 1604, ten years after Marlowe's death. In 1616, a longer version was published, longer by something like 600 lines, so increasing the play by just under 30%. For a long time, it was accepted that the additional lines were not Marlowe's work, And there is good evidence for this, as Henslow's diary includes mention of £4 paid to William Bride and Samuel Rowley for their additions in Dr Faustus in November 1602. However, more modern scholarship questions this clear-cut view and makes an argument that the play is better artistically for the addition of the extra scenes, which are more comedic in nature and add light and contrast to the otherwise unrelenting tragedy. Others agree that the play is better for exactly the opposite, and that the additional scenes do not add anything of any real value to the piece. The earlier version is not devoid of comic moments, and, the argument goes, is well balanced as tragedy with moments of comedy. It's possible that the later text is in fact sourced from an earlier version of the play, and what we think of as the earlier text is in fact a cut-down Turing version, where allowance has to be made for the fact that fewer resources would have been available to a touring troupe. The longer version is quite spectacular if all the effects were included. It's also possible that the censor had a hand in reducing the longer play to tone down some of the anti-Christian sentiments. When reprinted in modern editions, it's the longer play that you're reading, so I'm going to be using that version too. 
A chorus introduces us to the history of Dr Faustus, who was born a common man but had achieved greatness as a professor at the University of Wittenberg. He is at the top of his game, famous for his lectures on divinity, medicine, logic and law, and unmatched in his debating skills. But he longs for more knowledge, and believes that the answer may lie in the study of magic and other dark arts. Faustus is in his study reading Aristotle, but he remains unsatisfied, finding nothing new there, and Roman law as poultry. He turns to the Bible, but there finds only words that preach resignation to one's state. He worries that he is at the limit of learning, saying, Is to dispute well logic's chiefest end? Affords this art no greater miracle? Then read no more, thou hast attained the end. A greater subject fitteth Faustus's wit. And he longs for the capabilities that magic and sorcery would give him, making him more powerful than an emperor. He orders his servant Wagner to fetch his friends, Valdez and Cornelius, who are scholars and magicians, to advise him. While he waits, a good and bad angel appear before him. The good angel urges Faustus to put aside his magic book and to turn to the Bible for advice. The evil angel tells him to continue his magical studies, tempting him with greater power, saying, Be thou on earth, as Jove is in the sky. Faustus is enticed by that possibility, and believes that he could acquire great wealth, and use power to free the Germanic states from Spanish influence, and rule over them himself, with powerful new weapons that would be at his disposal. When Valdez and Cornelius arrive, they agree that he should turn his skills to the study of conjuring. They easily convince the already persuaded Faustus. They agree to teach him the rudiments of the art, saying, Faustus, these books, thy wit and our experience, shall make all nations to canonise us. Two scholars arrive at Faustus's house looking for him, as Wagner appears, and the scholars ask for Faustus's whereabouts. Wagner teases them with rapid-fire, quasi-logical statements, but finally admits that Faustus is indeed with Valdez and Cornelius. The scholars fear that Faustus has fallen under the influence of the dark magical arts, and they decide to consult with the local vector for advice on how to save him. Scene 3 sees Faustus in a grove at night, preparing magic symbols, including a circle in which he has inscribed the names of God, the saints, and the major stars and planets. He prays to demons, including Beelzebub, and calls on the demon Mephistopheles to appear. When he arrives, his appearance is so hideous that Faustus commands him to leave and return as a Franciscan friar, saying, That holy shape becomes a devil best. Mephistopheles obeys, returning to ask why Faustus has called him, and Faustus asks that the demon do whatever he commands. Mephistopheles says that he will have to refer that one up to his own master, Lucifer, and that it is only Faustus's curses against God and Jesus and the Scriptures in his summons that enabled him to appear at all. Unconcerned with distinctions between heaven and hell, Faustus and Mephistopheles discuss Lucifer's fall from grace which Mephistopheles puts down to his pride and insolence in the face of God. Faustus offers his soul to the devil if he will grant him 24 years of a life of wealth and power, with Mephistopheles at his side to attend to his every need. He tells the demon to return to his study at midnight with the devil's answer. 
Mephistopheles agrees and departs. While he waits, Faustus fantasises about the powers that will soon be his and resumes his study of magic. Wagner is in front of the house and calls over a street clown. They engage in some comic banter, in which Wagner promises to provide medicine to deal with the clown's fleas if he will become his servant. When the clown refuses, Wagner summons two demons to terrify him. Wagner sends the demons away and promises to the clown that, if he agrees to seven years of service with him, he will give him power to change himself into anything. The clown says he will choose to be a flea so that he can land on any woman he likes. They walk off together. Trying to put aside some initial doubts and the pleadings of the good angel, Faustus determines to follow his plan. Why waverest thou? Oh, something soundeth in mine ears. Abjure this magic. Turn to God again. I and Faustus will turn to God again. To God? He loves thee not. The God thou servest is thy own appetite, wherein is fixed the love of Beelzebub. To him I build an altar and a church, and offer lukewarm blood of newborn babies. The bad angel reminds him that repentance will not be an option, and he should just set his sights on wealth and glory. Faustus looks forward to a life of wealth and unlimited pleasure. As midnight strikes, he summons Mephistopheles again, who says that Lucifer has accepted his proposal, but on one condition, that he write a deed recording the gifting of his soul in his own blood. When Faustus asks why Lucifer has agreed to take his soul, Mephistopheles says, because misery loves company which is thought to be the first use of that phrase. Faustus cuts his arm and dips his quill in the blood, but it congeals before he can complete the wording of the deed and Mephistopheles has to soften his blood with a candle flame. Ignoring this apparent warning, Faustus completes the document. Suddenly he is fearful of what he has done and, to distract him, Mephistopheles provides exotic clothes for him and demons dance for his entertainment. Mephistopheles assures him that more is to come, and Faustus hands over the deed. He is now committed to the agreement. Immediately, he demands of Mephistopheles that he explain what hell is. The demon says that it is located beneath heaven, and that standing in Faustus's study, they are already in hell, and that, at the end of time, all places shall be hell that is not heaven. Faustus shrugs it off, saying that hell is a fable, but Mephistopheles assures him that it is real. Faustus then demands a wife, but Mephistopheles advises him against it, saying that he can have his fill of beautiful women, and he gives him a book of spells to conjure up whatever he desires. Faustus then asks for books explaining the planets and the stars, and then one to explain all the knowledge of the botany of the world. Mephistopheles provides them all. In the next scene, the good and the bad angels appear again, but the good angel soon realises that Faustus will never repent, and they leave. Despite some misgivings, Faustus is enjoying the conversations that he can have with historical figures that he has conjured up, and accepts that he has chosen his fate. He engages Mephistopheles in discourse about the nature of the planets and their movements, but is still dissatisfied and falls out with Mephistopheles when he refuses to give a straight answer about the creation of the world. The good and the bad angel reappear and continue their argument over the effect of repentance. 
but depart as Lucifer, Belzebub, and Mephistopheles reappear. Faustus is chastened for praying to God, which breaks his covenant with hell. He apologises and resolves instead to kill ministers and destroy their churches. Lucifer compliments him for these actions. The devil calls the seven deadly sins to entertain Faustus. Pride complains that Faustus's study isn't a fit place for it. Covetousness wishes to possess everything and everyone in Faustus's house. Wrath is spoiling for a fight, and Envy tells Faustus that since he can't read, it wants all books burned. Gluttony complains of its small allowance, which only affords it 30 meals and 10 snacks a day. Sloth can only be bothered to ask to be returned to his place of idleness. And finally, Lechery presents itself joking that the first letter of my name begins with Lechery. Faustus is now free to indulge in all of these sins. Faustus and Mephistopheles fly through Europe, visiting Paris, Thiers, Naples, Venice and other famous cities. They arrive in Rome at the Pope's private apartments. Before visiting the city, they agree to observe the Pope and his entourage. Faustus wants to be invisible and Mephistopheles obliges. They watch the Pope eat and then steal his food, taunt him and hit him when he crosses himself too often. A cuff round the ear from the invisible Faustus forces the Pope and his entourage to run from the room. Friars return to perform excommunication rites, but Faustus is unconcerned, hits them and tosses firecrackers after them. The chorus appears to tell of Faustus's return home, where his friends learn of his adventures and admire his newfound knowledge, and how Emperor Charles V has also learned of Faustus's abilities and has asked for him to feast at court. Back in Wittenberg, two stable boys discover one of Faustus's books and clumsily manage to conjure up Mephistopheles. He is irritated by their impudence. Monarch of hell under whose black survey great potentates do kneel with awful fear, upon whose altars thousands souls do lie, how am I vexed by these villains' charms? From Constantinople am I hither come, only for pleasure of these damned slaves. He puts fireworks in their pants and turns Robin into an ape and Ralph into a dog. Faustus uses the skills of Mephistopheles to entertain royalty. He delights the emperor by conjuring up Alexander the Great, and for the Duke and Duchess of Van Holt, he presents Helen of Troy. Wherever he goes, he is paid generously, and his wealth grows and grows. Time passes, and as the end of the pact nears, Faustus begins to doubt the wisdom of dealing with the devil. He returns to Wittenberg, but on his way is persuaded to sell his horse. He warns the dealer not to take the horse through water. Once home, Faustus sleeps and cannot be woken, even when the horse dealer forces his way in to complain that the horse dissolved as soon as they stepped into a pond. The situation is unresolved, as Faustus is woken and called to the court of the Duke of Vanholt. He departs immediately. Wagner relates how the Duke was entertained and that Faustus is now returned, but he is perplexed because Faustus is giving away his possessions like a dying man, but is still partying. Faustus's university friends ask him to conjure up Helen of Troy, which he does, and they are awed by her beauty. An old man tries to persuade Faustus to repent as his final hour nears. 
Refusing that chance, he asks for a final moment with Helen of Troy, declaring, Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burned the topless towers of Ilium? Sweet Helen, make me immortal with a kiss. But far from making him immortal, Helen's kiss is the final pull on his soul. The old man watches Faustus and swears that, unlike him, he will place his faith in God, defy hell, and escape to heaven, which laughs at demons. Three scholars beg Faustus to repent, but he believes that his sins are too great for even God's mercy. What art thou, Faustus, but a man condemned to die? Thy fatal time doth draw to final end. Despair doth drive distrust unto my thoughts, confound these passions with quiet sleep. Tush! Christ did call the thief upon the cross. Then rest thee, Faustus, quiet in conceit. He details his bargain with Lucifer to his friends, and they withdraw to be safe and to pray for him. As the clock strikes midnight, demons appear and drag Faustus away. He continues to try to bargain with them, but to no avail. The chorus confirms that Faustus now burns in hell for daring to possess more power than humans were ever meant to have. Marlowe's play is very loosely based on a story by Johann Spees. It purports to tell the true history of a German magician, astrologer and alchemist called Johann Georg Fausten who lived in the early 1500s and died in about 1541. The work is almost certainly mainly fiction, sticking various folk tales into the life. Marlowe removes Faustus from the folktale genre by making him a scholar of genius who is tempted by wealth and power. As with Tamburlaine, audiences could both admire Faustus for his scholarship, but hate him for his defiance of the Christian rule, while at the same time being thrilled and entertained by the demons who cavorted on the stage and by the magic that must have seemed all too real thanks to some stage effects. In essence, Faustus believes that the revealed learning of the past, which he has assimilated, means that he can now outsmart God and the devil. But in the end, this is proved to be hubris on his part. All the learning that Marlowe ascribes to Faustus is what Marlowe himself would admire in a scholar, and one can sense an element of Marlowe's confidence and arrogance in the character. Where scholarship is praised, it is religion that takes the brunt of Marlowe's criticism. He is careful to couch such criticism as a critique and mockery of Catholicism rather than all Christian religions. It is the Pope who has to suffer Faustus's abuse, which in Protestant England was a pretty safe bet at the time, especially as much of it is in the form of some crude comedy. With his criticism of religion expressed through the besting of the Pope, those who disliked his anti-Christian message could always convince themselves that it was an anti-Catholic message, which was okay. In the extended scene with the Pope, any message is buried in what was surely designed as primarily an entertainment for the groundlings, who no doubt booed and hissed and cheered at the papal discomfort. Stylistically, there are many similarities with Tamburlaine. This is a blank verse play where classical references abound, and here we also have a single-person chorus commenting on the action in the style of a Greek chorus, acting as the moral compass for the audience. But also in Faustus, we have long sections discussing current scientific learning, so the play is less about history than about the modern world. God, thanks to the presence of his opposite number Lucifer and his servant Mephistopheles, 
is much more obviously pleasant in this play than he was in Tamburlaine. Tamburlaine certainly included thoughts on the place and the role of God in the world, but in Faustus we see this much more overtly. The play is divided into scenes, with the first five dealing with Faustus's decision to make the pact with the devil, both in search of more knowledge and worldly pleasures, which is obvious from the start. He is already a man somewhat at odds with the morality of his time, where obedience to the church and the monarch was paramount. It would seem that it is his already extensive study and knowledge that leads him to a desire for more, and he acts as a warning to those who would allow personal benefit and preferences to push them away from the obedience to the crown and the church and ultimately to the will of God. Faustus constantly questions the wisdom of religion and the efficacy of repentance a very current debate at the time amongst the various flavours of Protestantism that were trying to find their place in the Reformed English Church. As part of the debate, we hear the phrase, que sera sera, what will be will be, which was, I think, its first use in a popular entertainment. The phrase comes from Italian and was used in heraldic mottos, but, of course, has resonated down the centuries and remained in popular use. When Faustus goes into a forest grove to practice magic, we have a good example of how Marlowe quickly establishes scene in just three lines. Faustus says, Now that the gloomy shadow of the earth longing to view Orion's dazzling look leaps from the Antarctic world unto the sky. So the audience knows that it's night, that Orion, a winter constellation, is up in the southern sky. So we not only have the location, but a feel for it too. Up to this point, Faustus has sought and has had the help of his friends, the fellow scholars Valdez and Cornelius. But they are the first people he betrays by taking their help and then contracting directly with the devil for his own gain. They are as greedy as he is, but nevertheless his friends, and the first to be cheated by him. God and mankind in general soon follow, and we don't see Valdez and Cornelius again. Mephistopheles appears early in the play, summoned by Faustus's magic. The character was originated in the original German Faust story, but is another that has been reused down the centuries, in the retellings of the Faustus legend and outside it too. On stage he is an entrancing character, so ugly when he first enters that Faustus cannot look at him. We can only speculate on what sort of costumes and makeup were used to give that effect but he soon returns disguised as a friar, as Faustus requests, a clear and pointed jibe at the corruption of monasteries and the Catholic religious orders. With Mephistopheles, Faustus is able to engage in philosophical and religious debates. He is keen to understand Lucifer's relationship to God, but when he is told that Lucifer's fall was due to pride and insolence, he fails to realise that Mephistopheles is describing his own faults. We also hear that Mephistopheles regards the earth as part of hell, or as somewhat contained within it, and that any place outside of heaven is some form of hell. Again, these were current debates at the time, and it seems that Marlowe was not afraid to expose his audience to them, however esoteric they may have seemed to the common people. Wagner, the servant, brings some light relief between the heavier debates and the portents of Faustus's doom. In his attempt to persuade a street entertainer to become his servant, he conjures up demons as a means of intimidation. 
It's just been established that Faustus is a man of learning and deep study, who has only just mastered magic. Yet here we have his servant summoning up demons with little learning and apparent effort. Are we to believe Wagner has just peeked into his books or recited a spell and met with success without any understanding of exactly how or what he was to achieve? This is just one of the problems with the inserted comic interludes, entertaining as they are. When Faustus signs the pact with his own blood, he seals his fate, something that he is aware of but pushes away for the moment. His first thought is to increase his knowledge further, showing that he still thinks of knowledge as a route to power and possibly what might still save him. And through the books he provides, Mephistopheles gives him just that. The second part of the play follows Faustus and Mephistopheles as they travel through Europe. He entertains the great and the good and punishes anyone who annoys him. Along with the entertainment element of his magical powers, through which we get a sense of his exploitation of Mephistopheles, there is also the continued quest for knowledge that questions the received order of the world. They discuss the unordered motion of the planets, which was an advanced concept for the time that questioned the mechanical perfection of God's creation, and which made the Catholic clergy very uneasy. Faustus also wants to know whether other planets have civilizations, and he is told that they do. This, too, was a heretical concept that suggested that Earth, and therefore the Church, may not be at the centre of creation. And those concerns had an effect in the real world within a decade of the premiere of Dr Faustus. A friar was burned at the stake for suggesting God could have created other civilizations in the heavens. Marlowe is certainly showing off his knowledge here, and his willingness to engage in such revolutionary thinking surely was not risk-free. Astronomers were beginning to argue that the Earth was not the centre of the universe, with all the anti-scriptural and anti-doctrinal implications that that entailed. However, Marlowe was astute enough to have such matters debated by a demon and an obviously corrupt protagonist, which perhaps gave him enough leeway to get away with it. And, as has been proved many times since, put your difficult message within a work that can be taken just for entertainment and subversive ideas can be slipped below the censor's radar. Descriptions of more exotic travel precede the visit to the Vatican and the Pope's private chambers. The scene is played for comedy, but it is a clever device allowing for religion to be insulted, but of course only the Catholic religion, through the form of the Pope. The Master of the Revels would have vetted the script of this play like any other at the time, and although religion was a very sensitive matter, it seems that he didn't have a problem passing this scene for public performance. The scene closes with the attempted excommunication of Faustus using the rite that was commonly known as the bell, book and candle, referring to the finale of the ritual where a bell is rung, the Bible is closed and lit candles are thrown to the floor. No doubt the phrase was well known to the population and would resonate with the audience, still well versed in the rites of the old church. The result of excommunication was ostracism from Catholic society, so it was a very serious religious and social state of being. A sort of living death. But Faustus is little concerned by it, as he thinks his fate, including his actual death, is already sealed. More comic moments follow as stable boys Robin and Ralph try their hand at magic, using a book stolen from Faustus. 
Echoing the previous comic scene with the servant Wagner, the next two illiterate boys are able to conjure up Mephistopheles, but admittedly in a very clumsy way. Mephistopheles is disgruntled that such lowly persons were able to call him, but he chases them off with fireworks as a punishment. If we look at this scene kindly, then we can say that it argues that anyone, from the lowest workhand to the most vaunted intellectual, can fall prey to greed and arrogance. Overly eager, the lads hurriedly enter into magical transactions with little knowledge of the risks and the pitfalls. The more they risk, the worse the price they must pay. Their ambitions are very much smaller than those of Faustus, who has overlooked the extreme danger to his immortal soul. A less kind reading is that it is a scene inserted for light entertainment that adds little to the play. However, it does serve to remind us how much the medieval tradition still influenced plays at the time. The cavorting demons and the fireworks in Dr Faustus seem very familiar if you remember the medieval plays on the pageant wagons that showed devils spewing from the stinking mouth of hell or devils with fireworks attached in the Castle of Perseverance. Similar memories are triggered when the seven deadly sins are paraded later in the play. We're going right back to the morality plays like Everyman and King John. It's just a reminder that although Protestantism was changing the nature of the stage and would eventually more or less eradicate the long tradition of the mystery play, it was a lengthy process and popular plays like Dr Faustus could still use the familiar tropes and methods of the medieval theatre. When Faustus fulfills Emperor Charles V's request to make Alexander the Great appear before him, it is shown as the pinnacle of Faustus's achievements. Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor from 1519 to 1566, was the most powerful ruler of his time, and even he is impressed with Faustus's abilities. And we are often reminded by the grumpy Mephistopheles that Faustus's power is really only the power to control and command Mephistopheles. It is the demon who actually produces the results that Faustus says display his own power. The last scene of the play shows the inevitable passage of time catching up with Faustus and his despair in the light of his misdeeds. Through the presence of a mysterious old man who has the perspective of a Faustus that might have been, the one that turned away from his pact with the devil, He realises that he has been his own worst enemy, but he still cannot bring himself to believe in the power of repentance. If there is a religious message in the play, it's probably this, that it is never too late to repent, and that no sin, however grievous, goes unforgiven by God. Unfortunately for Faustus, he cannot believe this. His final attempt to wriggle out of his bargain is nothing more than a stalling tactic. But his request for one more look at Helen of Troy and an intimate moment with her brings us to the most famous line of the play, the most famous line in all of Marlowe's plays, was this the face that launched a thousand ships? The appearance of characters like Helen and Alexander would surely have pulled in crowds as word of mouth about the play spread. These historical figures were becoming well known in poems and storytelling since the early Renaissance. Were people intrigued by the idea of how the greatest beauty and the greatest warrior known to history were to be portrayed on the London stage? Could an actor, especially when Helen was played by a young man, live up to that expectation? Did the power of the language and the willingness of audiences to suspend disbelief mean that this worked as a powerful moment on the stage? Whatever the effect of this illusion, it is just that. 
Mephistopheles makes it clear that no one is cheating death. These are not the dead reborn, but illusions for momentary entertainment. Sure enough, the moment with Helen has to end, and with the ominous striking of midnight, Faustus is dragged off into hell. There's no last-minute reprieve here. God does not reach down to rescue Faustus. No deus ex machina. But he is held back from reaching for God by Lucifer, intent on claiming his prize, which perhaps can be seen as a personification of Faustus's own reluctance to repent. If Faustus's aim was to unlock the puzzle of life with knowledge, then, we can assume, he did not like the answer that he rather belatedly found. The arrogance of knowledge leaving to that thorny old question of hubris is the major theme of the play, but an idea not aimed just at individuals, but societies. Advancement, Marlowe seems to say, is desirable, but we should be aware of the cost and not lose sight of the centrality of God and of good and evil in that equation. Whatever Marlowe's personal beliefs, the message of the play is that no one is entitled to break the laws of God or man, and that those who do will certainly be headed for everlasting punishment. When Marlowe selected this tale to adapt for the stage, he must have seen the potential for it to speak to his times. New discoveries that questioned old certainties were a worry to many people and to the state, and those discoveries were not in the domain of kings and emperors, but in the hands of intellectuals and scholars like Faustus, who were prepared to question and not just accept the divine right of kings. Books with arcane knowledge were being rediscovered, and ideas that these could be used for magical purposes were prevalent. The Queen had Dr. D in her service, trying to predict the future and turn base metals into gold. Nobody was in the least surprised that astronomers were also astrologers, and scientists were also alchemists. The supernatural and the magical elements of the play are all part of the entertainment, designed to amaze and enthrall and very much part of the zeitgeist of the time. Parts of Dr Faustus may well have been anxiety-inducing for some in the audience, but ultimately its message is one of compliance to accepted rules in the face of severe punishment for deviance. That, surely, sent many home thinking very hard about some deep questions. I think it's safe to say that Marlowe did not spare his audience. Spells, magic, angels, devils and demons, and the close presence of the devil, are all ideas and physical concerns that his audience were very familiar with, and to one extent or another were anxieties that they lived with day by day. The belief in devils and the power of magic was very real, and as we move into the 1600s, we can see such things, and ghosts, and witches, and murderous poisons and the like, fill the Elizabethan and Jacobean stages. And Marlowe suggests that humans suffer because they are already, in some way, in hell. This would not just have been seen as a poetic image, but understood as a close reality. In the Elizabethan population, fear of eternal damnation was very real. And here they were being told that if earth is already part of hell, but humanity lives in that hopeful worship of God, then the real torments of hell for all its demons and the condemned human souls consist chiefly of the knowledge that they can never attain the perfect happiness that is heaven. Hell, Mephistopheles suggests, is much closer to humanity than is heaven, and the suffering of not being in heaven is very real. Even Lucifer is not immune from it. 
He says, Thinkst thou that I who saw the face of God and tasted the eternal joys of heaven am not tormented with ten thousand hells in being deprived of everlasting bliss? It is surprising then that Faustus can put aside his fears of eternal damnation, but it shows how personally foolish he is, giving hope to those who can recognise his flaws and act accordingly to avoid them. It is Faustus's greed for pleasure, knowledge and power that derails him and blinds him to ignoring the consequences of ignoring the inevitability of death and judgment. His 24-year time span simply intensifies the judgments and choices that all men must make over their lifetime. Faustus, for all his learning, cannot strike a good deal or outwit the devil. Lucifer, on the other hand, has no problem waiting out a short 24 years when the prize is a human soul for eternity. It is one of the challenges of Marlowe that his work is so diverse, but of course that is one of the joys too. Where Tamburlaine is in the main an anti-Christian play, Dr Faustus is a confirmation of the Christian belief. But within both, there are balances and counterviews expressed. The chorus ends Dr Faustus with the following lines. Faustus is gone. Regard his hellish fall, whose fiendful fortune may exhort the wise only to wonder at unlawful things, whose deepness doth entice such forward wits to practice more than heavenly power permits. Even this parting shot is a little ambiguous, suggesting that heaven is holding back young men enticed by learning. I'm sure I hear Marlowe's true voice in that, but the message we take from the play probably depends on how we view the character of Faustus himself. For some, he is a deluded egotist, with overbearing pride in his own intellect. For others, he is a tortured soul, whose crime is to be deflected by desires of the flesh from his true path of wisdom, which is essentially an honourable one. The vacillations that Faustus suffers frequently through the play do humanise him somewhat, but I'm not sure that this tempers the general view of a foolish and greedy man so very much. As with Tamburlaine, we are expected to admire Faustus in some aspects while deploring his choices. He is another charismatic figure that has to dominate the stage so that we can start to believe that a man held rightly in such high regard could fall so very low. So, a moral tale for Marlowe's time, but also for ours and all time, because it is about good versus evil, the id versus the ego, and the dangers of the misuse of knowledge. Like all great literature, Dr Faustus can be interpreted to be speaking to all times and to any time, with a central message that gives us plenty of pause for thought, not to mention a very entertaining time in the theatre. Next time we'll have a bit of a round-up on Christopher Marlowe as I dip into his other plays and try to tie up my thoughts on this great and entertaining playwright. Join me then for the rest of Marlowe. In the meantime, please join the Facebook page or group or find us on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with the podcast and other theatre-related stuff. As I mentioned at the start, I would be very interested to hear any feedback that you have about the podcast to mark this 100th edition. You can find details of ways to support the podcast at the website which is www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. There is also additional content on Patreon that you can access for a small monthly fee. 
I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.